Is it time now? It's go time. Okay. Dude. Uh, this is a Recovered AF podcast. My name is Aaron. Um, this is a podcast where we talk about um, uh, recovery and being recovered and uh, all around uh, well-being in life. And um, Kyle's going to give us a disclaimer in regards to that. Yeah. Hey, um, w- this podcast is not affiliated with any 12-step organization at all whatsoever. Uh those organizations don't have spokespeople or representatives that speak for them. Uh, as we joke, if they did, Aaron and I would not be the two they would pick to do that. So uh, we are just a couple of gentlemen that are sharing our experience. We have a guest today that Aaron knows, and I'm meeting for the first time, so I'm going to let Aaron introduce her. Yeah, uh, thanks, Kyle. So our guest today is, um, I don't know if anybody's been listening from the beginning, I think our uh, first guest on the show and our fourth episode was um, a relative of my name, mine, and her name was Amy. And uh, today we've got her sponsor on the show, whose name is also Amy. So we're like when we title this one, we're going to actually have to use the last initial this time. But so we've got Amy sponsor Amy on the program. What's up, Amy? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, doing well. Good. Yeah. We're taking the whole trip down into uh, northern Colorado along the I-25 corridor today, so you're on that. You're on the list. Yay. Yay. <laughs> yeah, thank you for being on it with us. Yeah, thanks for asking me. Yeah, we got a lot of positive feedback about um, Amy's episode. What, what was that? I'm pretty oh. sure it was your phone. Oh, dang it. Real professional. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, re- re- really positive feedback about Amy's episode. And so that means m- you must have done something. You must have done something, correct, to steer that girl in the right direction? I don't know. <laughs> I just did what I was taught. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, we usually kickstart this thing with your first introduction into the 12-step world. Um, some people... It's early on, and they are exposed to it, and then they come back later. Some people, it's first time in stick. What was your experience getting introduced to the 12-step organization? My first introduction really was through my father. My father was an alcoholic, and I grew up in an alcoholic home. And I think I was around 10, and the first time that I went to an AA meeting with him, he he walked in, and he was kind of court-ordered there, I think, or ordered by his work. And uh, when we walked out, he was like, we don't talk about our feelings. We don't air our dirty laundry in public. And that's kind of like my first intro to any 12-step meeting. And, uh, you know, I was like, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to be like this. <laughs> so that was kind of the first intro. The second intro was uh, the second time that I went to jail. Hmm. I decided to go to a 12-step meeting so that they'd let me out of solitary <laughs> it wasn't a good experience. <laughs> I ended up on the table dancing, and they kicked me out. So my first real 12-step meeting that I needed to go to, I was kicked out. Nice. <laughs> that was that was why you were in jail? Well, I was in jail for, oh, for all kinds of different okay. things, you know, yeah. aggravated motor vehicle theft, first-degree assault on two police officers. Yeah. Like, so you took a, a joyride in a wedding dress in a vehicle is that right is if i remember yeah that right? so new year's day of 1995 i decided that i was going to go to las vegas and i got home i'm like 20 years old had a credit card in the mail told my friends i'm gonna take all of you guys to las vegas with me so we got down to the airport and we're all too drunk to go anywhere hmm. so they were like nope you're not going anywhere and on the way back home i was like fine I'll just drive. And I have this little hoopty Chevy Chevette, you know, that you have to park on a hill and <laughs> pop the clutch <laughs> and uh, get home. And I'm like, I'm going to, we're going to go see Metallica. Like, we're going to go party with Metallica. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if Metallica was in Las Vegas or not, but in my mind, they were. So <laughs> I went home and I got uh, dressed up in this wedding dress. And this was the wedding dress that I got married in when I was 15. And, uh, you know, it's a peach, like one of those peach prom dresses mm. with the uh, lace that goes all the way to the floor. <laughs> and because uh, I had to get married in peach because I was a sinner. Oh, no? yeah, <laughs> I was right. pregnant before I got married. <laughs> yeah. right. And I uh, put my Doc Martens on, put my hair in a bun on top of my head. And all of my friends were like, Amy, you're going to get us killed. So there was none of my friends left. But one of my <sighs> friends was like, oh, I have your keys. And I was like, yeah, but you don't have my spare keys. And 
got in the car. There was an officer standing behind my car, and luckily he moved because I wasn't going to stop. And uh, I was driving downtown Colorado Springs, and I remember like red and blue lights in my rearview mirror, and I got onto the on-ramp of Bijou and I-25, and uh, pulled my or put my car into reverse and slam in, slammed into all the cop cars behind me. Wow! So yeah, yeah. <laughs> really fun. They don't like that too much, so they draw their guns on you. <laughs> <laughs> and and wait, how old were you? I was twenty. Wow! And you'd already been you got married at fifteen. I did. I got married at fifteen. You, did you get emancipated or? I... So my dad died when I was fourteen. I was cirrhosis of the liver, mm. and then uh, I got pregnant. And at 15, my mom and a judge had to sign in order for me to get okay. married. Um, so was that it then? So, okay, so you were 20. You didn't make it all the way to Las Vegas <laughs> or very far at all. <laughs> well, I made it to a hospital bed and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. charcoal down the front of my gown oh, and yeah. handcuffed to the, mm-hmm. to the hospital Fantastic. bed. Fantastic. Um, and so then was that it for you? You ended up in that jail uh, jail meeting and were you like, is the, this is the meeting for, this is the thing for me then? Or No, they kicked me out of that. And then okay. I think the next day I got a PR bond mm-hmm. to leave. I don't even think I was sober and... Ended up arrest, rearrested the next day for a bunch of other charges. Okay. But then ended up in uh, solitary for the next 65 days. Okay. And like during that time in solitary, did you like come to the realization that you might need to quit drinking or was it just, or did you like go back and get some more fun when you got out? <laughs> no, I definitely wasn't thinking about getting okay. sober. Okay. I was thinking about killing myself and I was thinking about who could bring me a bottle of Bacardi 151 yeah. so that I don't have to feel the way that I feel. I lost custody of my daughter while I was um, sitting in solitary and um, that person did bring me a bottle of Bacardi 151 when I got out, and I was uh, totally smashed before I left the jar- the parking lot of that jail. Hmm. And I really don't remember anything that I did for the next three or four months. Okay. Wow. So. What tipped you into the 12-step program? Like, what was the eventual, oh, okay, I think that I need to do something about my drinking? Um, I got arrested again at the end of 1995 for... Um, <laughs> stealing a car and you know went to jail and it was pretty much at that point where I was just like (laughs) the consequences didn't even phase me it was like a break Mm -hmm. and I think it was around March yeah it was March of 1996 I called my mom and I told her that I wanted to kill myself more than anything and I really hadn't talked to my mom in probably seven years I left home when I was 14 and she said, actually, I have somebody here that wants to talk to you. And I was like, who could possibly <laughs> like want to talk to me? Like everybody on the planet didn't want to talk to me. Mm. And this guy got on the phone and it was a preacher that she just happened to have in her health food store. And um, he prayed with me and I don't know what he said to me, but I remember the feeling that came over me and there was like a little bit of hope. And my mom got back on the phone. And she said, have you thought about doing drug and alcohol rehab? Mm. I was like, for what? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I do not have a problem. Yeah. I am depressed. Like a pill will fix it. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I've looked into Salvation Army and you know, maybe you could do this. And I'm like, "Ugh, really? <laughs> no, not Salvation Army. But I called them. And they told me to stay sober and go to some meetings and that they would take me when there was a bed open. And although I did not stay sober and uh, I did end up going a few days later. Yeah. So I just turned 21. Okay. And then that was that was that was that it for you then? So I went to a six month program. So Mm -hmm. Salvation Army is a six month program really for indigent people. And uh, I was looking at prison time for all the stuff that I had done before and all the deferred stuff. And so I get into uh, Salvation Army. And about three months in, they're telling me, like, if you've ever, you know, tried controlled drinking, they're telling me all this stuff. Or if you've done drugs, then you're a drug addict. And I was like, why on earth would you ever try to control it? Like, seriously, (laughs) why would you? And so I was like, I have to try this controlled drinking. So one of the weekends that I went out, I tried some controlled drinking and came back. So it was about 90 days in. And my therapist there was like, Amy... Um, I really believe in you, and I think that you're going to make it. I'm going to put my job on the line for you. I don't want you to tell anybody that you drank. And uh, I completed the six-month program at Salvation Army. So I was uh, 22 when I graduated from that program. 
And I got out, and my brother said, let's celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> and right before I graduated from Salvation Army, I found out I was pregnant with my second daughter. Mm-hmm. And his celebration was, let's smoke a bowl. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I didn't even like weed. Yeah. So why not? Yeah. Right. And about a week later, my friend was like, a glass of wine would be good for the baby, Amy. Of course like, it would. Yeah, <laughs> a glass of wine would be good for the baby. I've heard that everywhere. I've yeah. read it everywhere. Yeah. And I didn't even like wine, you know. Like mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a Bacardi 151 drinker. Yeah. Right. I drink whiskey. Yeah. I don't drink wine. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember going to this uh, little bar that was next to the AA meeting that we used to go to, and. Uh, I remember them pouring that pink liquid into the glass, and I don't remember anything else about that night. Mm. And uh, I remember, you know, coming to the next morning and not being able to find my car, and just like having this like moment of clarity where I just started crying. And I'm like, "Where am I? Who am who am I with?" I woke up in a hotel room, and like, am I really willing to lose another kid as a result of my drinking? Mm. And I remember my therapist saying. Go to Vitality. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's these old guys up there that will help you. And, um, you know, I know you don't like girls. <laughs> no. Like, yeah, I don't trust those. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're always trying to take my man. <laughs> 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 uh, really, it was because I was untrustworthy. But, mm. you know, it took me a long time to realize that. But, yeah. So, the one thing, <clears throat> okay, let me back up. Since, you know, we have a lot of people that um, we found that listen to this podcast and not a lot, but we have some people that aren't in recovery. So when we start talking about some of the stuff and like being in the work and not being in the work and being in the, in the fellowship or around the fellowship, they don't quite, you know, have that experience of you know, understanding what we're talking about. But I've heard your story and I know, and I think the way I've heard you describe it as like living on the crumbs of the program for a long time. Um, maybe making another person in the program, a nice older gentleman, your higher power, and um, not getting the full benefits of what this has to offer. Can you share a little bit about your experience, what that was, like what that looked like? And um, yeah, can you just... So right before that last relapse, I met this girl while I was in Salvation Army, and she was like, I'm going to be your sponsor. You can move in with me. And you have to tell me all of your secrets because this is like what you have to do in order to stay sober. So I tell this lady all of my stuff. And the next day I heard her on the phone telling all of that same stuff to somebody else. Oh, no. So I think coupled with, you know, the idea that I could drink wine or that I could have a bowl or whatever, her telling that stuff prompted me into that last relapse for sure. Uh And so I was like, I'm never trusting anybody. So when they said I had to get a sponsor and I had to do the steps and all this other stuff, I'm like, really? Cause I know what you guys do. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was really scared to tell anybody anything. So I picked a bunch of dudes to be my sponsor and it didn't work out because there was a lot of, you know, like stuff you know, around like the sex inventory and all this other stuff that I just couldn't share everything because mm-hmm. I just didn't feel right about it. Right. And so I told just enough. And there was this little old guy and, you know, he was like in his 60s and I'm 22 and he listened to it and he was, you know, he was safe. He was one of the safe people that I could be around. So we'd go out to coffee till like three, four or five, six o'clock in the morning sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like he piecemealed the steps to me even when I didn't know that that's what he was doing and you know so I credit the old timers for really putting band-aids on me for a long time and before I was willing to do it you know I do a fourth and fifth step here and there like people would make me like Amy you need to get rid of this stuff and I would do it and I would get relief and uh you know but I never I never went all the way to recovery I never did steps one through 12 with anybody in a row because I was so afraid that if somebody really knew me, that they wouldn't like me. And, uh, you know, that was, like, the fear that stopped me every single time from being honest or from really telling people who I was. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell this person a little bit and this person a little bit and this person a little bit, and they were always in, like, different circles, so yeah. nobody really knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a long time. You know, I remember around five years sober finally doing a fourth and fifth step with this lady and feeling so much better but stopping Mm. and uh you know I was miserable and I was thinking about killing myself and 
you know, kicking chairs and doing all this crazy stuff, like ended up on antidepressants and mm. just I completely just, untreated. Yeah. And I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. You know, it wasn't like I was like adamantly like I'm not doing this. Like right. I thought it was enough. I just didn't have like strong guidance and I needed somebody that could cut through all of that stuff that was going on inside my head. And I just, I didn't pursue it enough. I think, you know, some of it was my age though too, you know, like in your twenties. I mean, it's all about like not doing what anybody else says to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I got sober at 26 and for a short period of time, had a similar experience of just kind of like doing just enough to not drink or die and not really doing much more. And then eventually just was like, Oh yeah, nothing's changed. I'm still thinking about killing myself all the time. I'm still thinking about drinking. I still, that's my default when something doesn't go right. And eventually had the tipping point into, I got to do all of this or I'm going to die. So yeah, it's very real to have that experience. So, so what was the, um, who did you just, did you finally find somebody that you were trusted that were, was able to cut through all that? Or what was the, what was the tipping point? Cause like, I know you now and I didn't know you back then. And you know, now you're, you're all about it and you're in the book and you're, you know, doing the whole thing and you're, and, and your life, you know, shows that what, what was the tipping point that, that you transitioned through being around the fellowship to being a part of, to, you know, like it being your life. So I was 10 years sober and Jim, that little timer died. And, um, you know, I really didn't realize before that, that I had made him my higher power, but I really did because I was struggling with the God thing. I'd been sexually abused in the church and, you know, all these different things had happened. And I was just like, I can't believe in a God that doesn't keep you safe when you're a little kid. Like, no. Mm. And so I put all my trust in Jim. I can remember times where I woke up and went like, oh my God, you know, if I relapse, what is Jim going to say? And when he died, my whole world absolutely fell apart. I ended up in the hospital with stress-induced meningitis. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. And, you know, I was driving 33 miles from here one way Mm -hmm. to that meeting just Mm. because that's the meeting Jim went to. And I went up there for a noon meeting one day. They were kind of having, like, a little memorial thing. And uh, one of my friends elbowed me in the side and said, Amy, you should go ask that girl to be your sponsor. And I was like, for what? (laughs) You know, like, I'm 10 years sober. I'm fine. (laughs) And, uh... You know, this guy came up, he brought me a box of Kleenex and treated me like a newcomer, and I wanted to punch him in the throat. <laughs> like, all, I, all I remember was, like, this guy, I mean, I've seen him a hundred times. Mm-hmm. wasn't like it's the first time I saw right. him. And uh, I went over, and that lady caught me out of the corner of her eye, and she said, Amy, do you need to talk? And we went down to her car, and I talked and cried for the next five hours, and wow. she listened. Hmm. And I told her I was thinking about running my car into oncoming traffic every time I drove down there. And she said, please drink. Please drink before you kill yourself, because uh-huh. at least you have a chance to come back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I had never heard that. You know, I'd yeah. heard all these people say, you know, pick your butt up, take it to a meeting. Right. We don't drink no matter what, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And she said, you're coming to my house on Saturday and we're going to read the book. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> like, really? That's the solution? That boring book? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, you need a guide. Mm. You can't understand it on your own. You need somebody to take you through it. And I showed up right at our house on, on Saturday, and it was like 35 miles one way from my house. Mm-hmm. And I showed up every time she said to be there twice, sometimes three times a week. And, you know, she walked me through every word on every page of the book and absolutely changed my life. Wow. Yeah, what an amazing, what an amazing woman. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. So <clears throat> after that... Um, because you and I haven't met, but from what I've heard, you were gung-ho, all in on on the work and everything. Uh, did that transformation happen immediately after going through the work with that lady, or was that kind of still a slow burn afterwards? No, it was absolutely immediate. Mm-hmm. Like, I had something that I had to give. And yeah. She said, once you have, once you've done the process of the steps in a row with one person, and you have... Um, gotten the spiritual awakening as the result of that, Mm -hmm. you will have that need to give it away. Like it's like the, you know, like them lighting the furnace. Yes. It was immediate. 
where people left and right, because before that I was like, nobody asked me to sponsor them. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, because you have nothing to give. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people were asking me left and right, and I was like, I can't sponsor any more people. Like, mm. I have eight people right now. And she's like, you keep doing this to the best of your ability, and you will never have too many people. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, mm. I'm going to have 100 sponsees, yeah. and I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just it's been amazing really ever since I worked the steps with her, she taught herself how to read with the big book Wow! and, uh, you know, knew that book like the back of her hand and changed everywhere where it said God and it to higher power so that I could hear it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that absolutely changed my life. I saw the forgiveness in her eyes sitting across the table from her and knowing that even if somebody really knew me, that they would still love me. Hmm. Wow. So, you talked about having, you know, I'm going to talk about sponsorship. You talked about, you know, having like eight at a time. And there's been times, not so much this time around, but the last time when I just felt like I had so much going on that I couldn't tend to my regular life. Is there um, like, is there a limit that you, you know, you have X amount of girls that you're willing to work with at the time and like so that you don't overextend yourself and cut into your family time and take away from that? Or is it just whatever God puts in front of you, like, then you feel a sense of obligation to pick up? Like, because I never quite know where the line is. I don't have to worry about it right now because I don't, I go to one meeting a week and don't really. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering, what is that like for you? Or the other thing we've had is um, we just talked to our last guest about um, sponsoring starting people a bunch of people at the same time and then taking them through as a group and that being pretty effective like what's your experience around sponsorship and then because once you get what you have and there's especially among women there's a strong woman it's just easy to for that person to be gravitated to you know and like i know when amy got sober like you you know i said a prayer and you were the person that came to mind and that's the reason why i had her call you you know, that was a God thing. But like, so when you have what you have and you have that fire that you were talking about, people are attracted to that. And that can, you know, it can tend to gather everybody. So do you have that experience? Like, what do you do with that? How do you like wade through that? So some of it, I mean, really some of it is sitting down with people and setting up realistic expectations of what sponsorship is and Mm -hmm. what it isn't. Yeah. So, you know, like I sit down, I go through expectations, I go through like hopes and what they hope to get out of it, what I hope to get out of it, what my expectations are of them before I'll ever say yes. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll set them up with some, you know, pretty extensual or some pretty like basic homework, but a lot of it. To see if they'll actually do it. Mm-hmm. Like, and if they do, you know, like first step stuff. Like, you know, what it, you know, what happened when you drank? Like, how much did you drink? When you drank, you know, like what what was the next drink that you got? You know, stuff like that. Like, what are the opportunities that you missed as a result of your drinking? You know, like a whole different set of questionnaires, kind of that I've come up with over the years that I have them do. And if they show up at my house on time with those questions and talk about their expectations and our schedules meet. I'll sponsor them. Okay. A lot of times that's not the case. They right. don't know what they're getting themselves into right. talking to me. Right. Because right. some people are blase fair about it. Like, mm, do whatever you want. I'm not. Yeah. Like, my job is to take you through the steps. If you don't have the time to go through the steps, I'm not going to push you through it. I'm not going to pull you through it. But I'll walk with you through it. Yeah. And so I do a group on Tuesday nights. Most of my girls meet here 6.30 to 8 o'clock Tuesday nights. We go through different books, so they've all been through the steps, the traditions, the concepts, the, you know, the women's way through the 12 steps. We're starting living sober, and that's the way that I sponsor most of my girls. A new girl that comes in, I'll sponsor them separately from the group, but they're still required to go to the group meetings mm. because they need a sober community. Mm-hmm. You know, far too often people come into the program and they – don't have a sober network. They don't know who to talk to. Mm-hmm. They're hanging out with the losers, not the winners, because they don't know who the winners are. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you hear this all over. Hang out with the winners. Well, who are the winners? Yeah. I've only cho- chosen losers my whole life. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, when when you're doing a group setting, you do fifth steps individually, I would assume, or is it all still a group thing? I do fist steps individually. individually yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I don't think people can be uh, honest with yeah. a fist step in a group. 
Although I believe that some of my girls that have more time will absolutely fist up with each other. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll encourage them to fist up with me and then fist up with a few other people so that they can get some different perspectives absolutely. on what's going on. Yeah. That's what this is. It's about a change in perspective. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, because I, I get into a position sometimes where I've contemplated doing like a group thing and I've just never pulled the trigger on it, but this has been a reoccurring theme. So I think the yeah. next time it happens, it's like, oh yeah. So I, I'll end up kind of getting them in waves where it's like two or three at a time and it's like, oh shit, how am I going to fit this into my schedule and I want to be present in everything and not neglect other parts of my life. So I'm going to have to incorporate this into my <laughs> program. So. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been a life changer for me because I have 10 sponsees right now, you know, and I have sponsees all over the place. Wow. Not not just here, but mm-hmm. I have a girl in Arizona. I sponsor a girl in Jordan, the mm. country. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, like they call in. They're part of the, the group call. They uh, email me gratitude lists on a daily basis. They're checking in. They're letting me know what they're doing for their sobriety, how many meetings they're going to. Hmm. They're reaching out to newcomers. I mean, they have a regiment of things that I make them do if they're going to be my sponsee. Right. So, well, sponsling. Right. <laughs> have you um, have you and a sponsee taken another newcomer through the work before? Like two and then one? I'm a sponsor and I just did that and it's been effective so far, but I've never done it before. So it's kind of a new experience. I have done that. And it was kind of like a, a rush through the 12 steps, like in a kind of like a weekend or a three day thing. Mm-hmm. And my experience with it wasn't bad, mm-hmm. but I would say it's more effective if you can sit down with them and really explain everything to them. Cause I read every word on every page to them. Mm-hmm. I don't send them home to read a couple of pages and then bring back homework. Right. Like I read with them, have them look up words. I think that that has been the most effective. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I know that you do that cause sometimes Amy and I'll be talking, um, cousin Amy, I should <laughs> clarify cause we're talking to Amy, but cousin Amy and, um, We'll be talking about something, and she'll stop and then throw out the definition for me. I'm like, okay, thanks. Right. Yeah. Or it'll be, I, like, my favorite definition, because, you know, if I have 20 sponsees, and they're all looking up a definition, I get to pick my favorite out of 20, yeah. you know? Yeah. So now I don't have to do the work right. anymore on yeah. definitions. I can make them do it. That's awesome. Um, I was just going to ask you about, because I know that you have a pretty full family life, too. So um, you went from 22-year-old who'd lost custody of a daughter pregnant with another one to now where you have a seemingly pretty healthy, happy, full life, you know, husband. And um, re- re- you got custody back of your daughter? I never did. Oh, you never, never did? I never did get custody of her okay. back. Her, you know, her whole dad's side of the family had a lot more money. And I was an active part of her life, but definitely... Not really, mom. Oh, but you but you still have contact with her yes, now. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, we just went to Florida last week. Oh, okay. wow! Took cool. her and the younger daughter oh, yeah. to Amelia Island. Yeah. At Amy's prompting. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, she's good for that. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Um, so where about in there? Did you get married? Um, because was it before you like got into the work? Did you get married before you got into the work, yes. or was it afterward? Um, even though I had been cautioned against that, you know, yeah. like even I mean, some of the people seriously in the program told him that he shouldn't marry me until I've gone through the twelve steps. Yeah, and I was super angry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you have crossed the line. How dare you? you know? yeah. And he, he didn't care. Mm-hmm. But I met him when I was a year sober, okay. almost a year sober. So he never saw me drinking or using. And uh, we got married. I was four years sober. Okay. So. Yeah. That's cool. Um, And then, like, so I imagine, I don't know. Like, I don't know. When I was 20, I think I tried to get sober the first time when I was 20. And for dudes, um, or at least for this dude, it was just one construction job after another construction job because those are the kind of jobs that people like me can get because I just wasn't Mm -hmm. reliable and I wasn't very... um, and I just didn't have the necessary skills at that time in my life to um, be committed to anything, really, um, employment or otherwise. But like one of the one of the themes that we see when we started this, we wanted to talk to people that are like killing it, that are just doing really well in life. And um, that's a great idea in principle. Where it comes into trouble is actually scheduling people, because if you want people with a full life, <laughs> they're going to be busy all that's the right. time, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm looking at your Facebook page, and you are traveling 
all of the time. Like you, you were hanging out with um, AC Slater a couple of weeks ago in Hollywood. <laughs> like, what was that? What is that about? Because I like it's something something to do with a trauma foundation or something, right? Because Kyle Kyle just started trauma therapy, and I do trauma therapy at, also at Amy's suggestion. Um, but so that is that is that like how? Tell me what that what were you were doing in LA and like what was it for? Because like, I'm just curious. I have no idea, but it looked pretty cool. I mean, if you get to hang out with AC Slater. You know, I I do have a really cool life, yeah. and I think I took fifty three flights last year. Oh my wow. god! And you know, I've been doing interventions for the past seven years, and I just got my national coaching certification for recovery, and I've been doing a bunch of coaching for um, some top ten Billboard artists, and uh, a lady that I met speaking at a conference actually started a trauma foundation okay and um, the trauma foundation actually helped me about seven years ago because I kind of went through a lull in my sobriety where I wasn't doing so hot mentally and couldn't really figure out like what it was you know I was doing well in um, my recovery and helping other people and there just was something was off and I had gotten an opportunity to do a professionals weekend at uh, a place in Kentucky where they did like a like a start of a trauma therapy. And it was a whole week long of like all these different modalities, really teaching professionals how to address trauma and how to, you know, help yourself with trauma. Mm. But really it address addresses your trauma so you can recognize it in other people. Mm. And so while I was there... I made a connection that I had never made before, which was I called my sponsor immediately and I was like, how many, how many people do you think that I've been sexually abused by? And she goes, uh, three. And I said, no, eight. Mm. And I had blamed five of the assaults on myself because I put myself in those positions to be hurt. Mm. You know, even a rape at knife point, like that was my fault because you were drunk. Mm -hmm. You put yourself in that position instead of dealing with the trauma. I just blamed it on myself. Well, I'd I had, uh, you know, not processed it, mm -hmm. and I had uh, blanked it out for a lot of years. So I think I was like 32 or something mm -hmm. when I started remembering that. Wow. And so dealing with that, um, the trauma um, foundation that I went and helped be a part of actually paid for some of my trauma therapy when I got back. Wow. So the rapid resolution trauma therapy helped me immensely. So I did seven sessions with her, and they were... You know, it's a whole different type of trauma therapy. It's mm -hmm. quick. It's, I don't know. It absolutely changed my life, though. It was, was it EMDR? They no, EMDR? it wasn't. No. It's, a, it's actually a form of, um, it's almost like hypnosis mm -hmm. and semi-hypnotic and EMDR. Some EMDR stuff, but not like yeah. traditional EMDR. Right. But she will like distort the memory, so the memory will go act actually go back to the memory bank instead of being in 3D in the forefront of your mind. Like she's absolutely amazing, and wow. she changed my life in so many areas. Like a lot of trauma that I had around my mom and my dad dying and the sexual abuse and just like all these different traumas that were like constantly being aggravated mm -hmm. little memories because you know i'm dealing with people that have a lot of trauma right so i'm taking yeah. somebody through the steps and i'm getting triggered yeah mm -hmm. and i'm like what do we what do you do with all this stuff yeah so yeah I'm, that was a powerful like a, a, my uh i had a, a session last week and then yesterday was actually my first full-on emdr session and yeah it was I already am like starting to perceive the world differently in, in one set. Just kind of like, oh, you know, some of that stuff's been driving my behavior. For, that's what I told Aaron today. Some of that's been driving my behavior for 25 years. And it just now, uh, you know, it just starting to connect the dots a little bit for me in, in a short amount of time. But it's um, it makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I have a, a better perspective and perception on, on my life and then thinking about other guys that I'm working with, too. It's been huge already instrumental in my life immediately so i'm big proponent of it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah i was just gonna say like the taking other people through the work and being triggered by that stuff i mean i had heard um somebody else's fourth step and it was just a lot of heavy stuff on that 
and uh and i was a little weird afterwards i couldn't i can't really explain it i was just just like i don't know it was just heavy you know and fortunately like that week i had to see my trauma therapist and i was like what i don't know what do i do with all of this and she actually helped me figure out how to do some of that and detach from some of that and not not have that stuff affect me so that's pretty cool because i mean i'm not a paid professional you know i'm just here doing what what was taught to me just trying to help out the best that i can but mm -hmm. sometimes we're dealing with a lot of shit you know and fuck i feel you know underqualified to deal with some of that especially <laughs> if i don't have that experience yeah, absolutely right. uh so most of your traveling is for the interventions that you've been doing or just all over the place, 53 flights for everything in the world or for everything. Yeah. You know, I've gotten to travel a bunch this That's year. Cool. Like I've been to 10 different countries. Wow. I've gotten to speak about recovery in London and oh, like wow. all over the place. You know, I get asked to speak at conferences and it's super cool. And I don't know, it's just amazing. Like all the things that I get to do. And like uh, last October, I got asked to speak at a women's conference in Hawaii. Mm. Oh, cool. And I was like, uh, yes, sign me up. Yeah. Sign me up. That's a like, tough one. You're going <laughs> to buy me a plane ticket. You're going to yeah. give me a hotel room right. and, yeah. you know, pay for my food. I don't get paid to, to do the conferences, right. but, course, you know, like yeah. they, they pay for all my expenses. Yeah. And so I got the opportunity to call my oldest daughter, the one that I lost custody of. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, kiddo, um, I'm going to Hawaii. You want to go with me? And uh, she readily accepted. Cool. And so we went there and got there. And one of the ladies was like, do you even know how amazing your mom is? Like, <laughs> do you have any clue? And she's oh, like, wow. yeah. <laughs> and they're like, are you going to come hear her story? And she goes, no. <laughs> I'm a huge part of that story. Yeah, right. And then after, like, all of these ladies throughout the whole weekend are, like, working on her, they're like, your mom is the main speaker at our conference. Mm -hmm. You're not going to come hear her. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they talked her into it, which I was horrified. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. I'm standing there going, this is the hardest time yeah. ever. But I stood there and I told my story and my, and my daughter got to see me in a different light. You know, like I had her when I was 16 mm. and um, she cried through the whole thing and I cried through the whole thing. And, you know, like I went and hugged her and she said, mom, I had no idea. Oh, wow. And, you know, it was a... It was a 12-step program, not only for the alcoholic and the addict, but for the family members as well. Mm. And, um, you know, I remember standing in the thank you line and and watching all these ladies, ladies come up to me and, and hug me and then go straight from me to my daughter. Wow. And, you know, like, I really didn't know that that promise in the in the book that that says we will not regress, regret our past or wish shut the door on it would actually happen for me. Like in that area, I really thought that that would always be like an open wound. And, you know, an amends took place that day as a result of the 12 step work that couldn't have happened any other way. And, um, you know, like that is the stuff that, you know, like how did I get so lucky? Yeah. But wow. Incredible. Yeah, that's the stuff. And um, again, for people that aren't in the fellowship, like we have um, conferences and conventions um, all over the country and all over the world. And a lot of times um, what's common in these is on uh, in the evenings to have a, a person get up and tell their 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 story in front of the group and share their story. And they get asked to speak and like uh, like. Amy said, "We don't get, you know, we don't get paid for this. We do it for fun and for free, and uh, you know, we do it for the, you know, being asked to do it. And um, so when you know she's talking about traveling all over the world to speak at conferences, it's in that context, right? Yeah, right. just get up there and share your story, because like I, you know, and I just from my own experience here, um, you know, I think um, Derek talked about it too. I went through my life just feeling absolutely disconnected." And um, that's the one thing that opiates did for me is they connected me to the world and everything around me. And, and all the voids, you know, if I was a piece of Swiss cheese, those opiates just filled up all those holes for me. And, and so then I get here and I'm completely disconnected again. And to go sit in a room and listen to somebody tell their story that's not my story, but I can identify with so much of it. I mean, um, to feel that connection is, I think, why we'd get together and why we do that and why we share our stories with one another. So, And this is just another form of that, just more in a conversation-type forum, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And the sense of purpose that, that you get. You know, for me, like, I didn't have a direction in life or any purpose or any, you know, and having recovered from a hopeless state, like there's a sense of direction that comes from that. And then all of the other shit that happens, just it, it blows my mind. That's what I love most about this format is 
I get to meet people I wouldn't probably have met and I get to hear shit like you were just talking about and just blows my mind how good life is as a result of just taking some action right <laughs> you know like a lot of action yeah you exactly know, like, i have to do more for my sobriety today than i did in the beginning yeah because you know i feel like i'm further o- further away from that drink mm-hmm. you know like i'm closer because i'm further away from that thought that remember that reminder mm. that what it was like yeah and so i have to do more for myself today and I go into the prison and I sponsor women in the prison. And, you know, it's funny, you guys are sitting here because I was thinking about this girl earlier today and I was sponsoring her and I'm listening to her fist up and she's telling me about her kids and they're, you know, definitely unique names. And uh, I immediately recognized her kids' names. Mm, Um, Her kids moved in across the street, (laughs) like right across the street here. With the adopted parents. Oh, like she had no wow. idea where her kids were. Wow. And, you know, I, like I sat across from her listening to that fist step going, God, you know, like, you have no idea how big your God is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because oh my. your higher power, like, has your back. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you have no idea. And yeah. I couldn't tell her about her kids moving in across the street or anything. But, right. You know, until they moved away. But yeah. how, how does that happen? <laughs> like... <laughs> Like mind blown, yeah. and yeah. my my higher power got bigger that day. Mm-hmm. When you know, like I realized these things that there is no way on earth that I could orchestrate any of this stuff to happen, not in a million zillion years. Yeah. So. Oh my. One question I was thinking of is so like um, in the eleventh step in the book, it talks about um, talking to ones uh, what does it say priest or rabbi to find useful suggestions for you know prayers and stuff like that but like i use that little passage to read a lot of outside books and some of the ones like uh, the untethered soul is one that cousin amy turned me on to but um i was wondering if you have like a set of uh literature or, or books that you read or have read that have like gone you know hand in hand with what you do and spiritual growth and living because like you know again inside the rooms we don't talk about these things because they're outside literature but the beauty of this podcast and not being affiliated with anything is being able to talk about those things is there any books that you have read or read that you've found you know that have specifically helped you along as you've done this Man, there's a million, yeah. there's a million mm-hmm. books, but I really love Brene Brown. I love yeah. like what she stands yeah. for. I love the simplicity of her message and how easy it is to incorporate it into recovery and just into anybody's life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, giving yourself a permission to slip to do things that you ne- normally wouldn't have done or to write a contract with yourself. You know, those are things that I utilize even, you know, with, with my sponsor, uh, sponsees Mm -hmm. and tell them like, this isn't 12 step, but I know it really helps. And, you know, reading a lot of books about the brain and, and neurochemistry and neuropathways and, you know, just learning that a gratitude list, seriously, a gratitude list will change your brain in a matter of six weeks. Mm -hmm. Like they've done brain scans that show, like um, gratitude lists, meditations, like even a simple meditation, like sa na ma pa, over and over and over, a series of five minutes per day for six weeks will change your brain and your prefrontal cortex will be more lit up, <laughs> which, you know, that that's what this is about. It's a brain disease. Right. So we need to help our brain get healed. And well. so there's, I'm such a brain nerd and, you know, love doing that neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. So neurofeedback is one of the things that I've done and, you know, doing meditation, teaching mala classes, like there's so much that I incorporate into my 11th step. Um, in October, I went to the biggest amethyst cave in the world and it was in Gold Coast, Australia. And, um, we got there late because the time changes from like the airport to this place to this other (laughs) little town. And I got there an hour late and they were like, sorry, like, meditation is closed and like this is the only thing i wanted to do the whole time (laughs) that i'm in australia like i'm 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 crying yeah you're like Like, i flew 24 hours like falling my eyes out going oh my gosh i cannot believe this this is the only thing i really wanted to do over here and she goes well it just so happens that this lady is here and she needs some training on meditations and she absolutely has turned out to be the greatest gift in my life <laughs> wow. since October. Like she calls into my Tuesday night group and she does meditations with my girls and teaches them like kinesiology and like all this stuff. Like I'm like, what? 
Like, how did this happen? Yeah. All because I missed the initial <laughs> <Yeah>. appointment. <laughs> I got a private meditation in this amethyst cave. Right. In Australia. <laughs> and, like, rocks and stones and oils and, like, all of this stuff are things that I use in my spiritual practice. So. Aaron and I were just talking about on the way over on the here. Way here. Literally, we were talking about, like, do you ever w- think, like, could you stay tapped into that power where it's, like, Stuff like that, where it's like, oh, I showed up late and it worked out exactly how it was supposed to. And to be able to navigate that. And I was telling him, I was like, I don't know, but I think so. Like, I think it's possible because like as long as I just stay tapped into the power, like the results are going to come the way they were supposed to. And it's not always how I perceive it to look, but like they're going to come, you know. And we were talking about it because we were going to show up. Our thing said we were going to be at your house right at 1230. That was what we said. And we were like, does it just work out like that or what? And we're just kind of bouncing around through Colorado today. And everything's just kind of aligning. And it's like, oh, yeah. And sometimes it won't align. And it it still works out. It works out even better when you're an hour late. So that's what I was telling him. So it's funny that it gets brought up. Um, I was going to ask, like, so when you take somebody through the 11th step, because I get like, I get, I like to get super technical about this stuff, right? And so I wake up, I am, I sit down, I ask God to direct my thinking, especially ask that it be divorced from self pity, dishonest, selfish emotions. I consider the 24 hours ahead, right? When I'm done with that, I ask God that I be shown has a direction all throughout the day, or what my next step would be. Uh, yeah, yeah, and how I could take... Anyway, and then, in the, and then in the evening, you know, we ask ourselves the 11 questions and we do the evening review and boom, and then that's the 11th step. When you, like, take a girl through the 11th step, do you go through that and then are you, like, and also just figure the rest out or do you give them some pointers or, like, how do you take somebody through that, like the morning, evening, and I guess there's also a daytime portion of the 11th step where it says, you know, we ask all, or reminding ourselves throughout the day that I will not mind be done. Is that how it's worded? Something like that. Pause when agitated or yeah. doubtful. Ask for what? So, like, do you just give them, like, those instructions there as you're going, as you're reading it page by page, and then um, say, and then figure out the rest yourself, or do you, like, give them some pointers on what's worked for you? Like, how do you navigate taking somebody through that 11th step? So kind of like what I just told you, like I have this lady that calls in, does meditations. I do, you know, chakra cleanses with them. We incorporate a lot of different meditations in the 11th step. The the first thing that I do with them, though, if I'm taking them through the book for the first time and they're going through with the group is on step 10, I have them pick a partner. Mm -hmm. So that's the nice thing about like 10, 10 people being in my living room on Tuesday nights. Everybody gets a partner. I don't have to listen to 10 steps all day long, (laughs) and I don't have to listen to a nightly review every night. Mm -hmm. So they are supposed to do 10 steps throughout the day with this buddy and do an 11-step review with whoever their buddy is Mm -hmm. or with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I'm available for those 11-step reviews as well, Mm -hmm. and I have them do the stuff that's in the book. Also, I have them do whatever it is that comes to mind, like – you have a gut feeling about stuff that you want to do. So mm-hmm. let's let's try that. Let's read other books. We're like right now we're doing um, a line a week of the St. Francis prayer. Mm. So last week we started the first line. So I want them to memorize it. I want them to apply it in their daily life. I want them to give me examples of how that has happened for them. Mm. And so that's kind of what we're working on in our 11th step right now. But we're really open to anything. Like we've listened to drumming. We've, you know, gone to like singing bowls and Mm -hmm. you know pretty much anything that you can think of i go to a buddhist temple so they've all been encouraged to come there and do that or um, get a prayer mala or whatever whatever it is so i'm pretty open to pretty much anything and i i sponsor people across the board like christians and catholics and uh high priestess and like Mm -hmm. you name it and none of it really um, offends anybody, right. Right. no matter what I say. Yeah, that's that's crucial. When I started working with my sponsor now, the first thing he did was like, dude, you need to read some outside literature. <laughs> so that was the very first thing that he had me start doing was getting outside of that. And then, you know, encouraged me to get outside of just the structure of what's applied in, in those three pages of, like, not don't do those, but do more than that. And my... 11 step work is I can't even fathom how much it's grown as a result of just getting into outside literature, exploring other things, you know, sweat lodges and float tanks, just getting out and exploring new stuff. It really has changed my 11th step practice a lot. And so I, 
I love that other people are doing that too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, you know, it says that that chapter is only a beginning. Right. So mm. If we're reading pages 83 through 88, you know, on a daily basis and we're applying all that stuff, we better be growing because mm. this isn't a program about maintenance. I yeah. know a lot of people say that, but this is a growth program. Absolutely. If you're not growing, you are going. You're mm-hmm. going right out the door. Yeah. So mm. you better be growing. You better be doing something outside of that. You better be reading books. Mm-hmm. I encourage people to read books and, you know, like we might start a book club. We have all kinds of ideas, but, you know, cool. time is of the essence (laughs) that's what happened to fred the car salesman right he failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life right yeah exactly silly son of a bitch yeah (laughs) yeah so he couldn't he couldn't survive those low spots and trials ahead yeah that's right (laughs) he fell in the he he fell in the rut yeah (laughs) that's funny Uh, did you have a question uh no go ahead shoot i was gonna ask you about um so you said you're also doing um stuff as an interventionist and that you've been nationally certified um and this is things that i don't know anything about other than what i've seen on tv and that's not always the best depiction of what actually happens so my question is who i'm guessing if it's an okay if it's an intervention it's not the sufferer reaching out to you then because they would that would be a 12-step call okay (laughs) okay so um so it's the family then of the of the affected person Right. It could be the family. It could be, you know, bosses. It could be, you know, whoever. So people that are closely related that are affected. Hmm. So not always a family member, but sometimes, you know, it's a boss or um, concerned um, co-workers right. or, you know. And then how far out in advance do they, how like, is it like um, they call you up on a Tuesday and they're like, you know, Renee is absolutely out of control. She comes to work shit faced every day and we've got to like lay it down for her. Then, I mean, are you there like immediately? I mean, imagine, because I think you, you said even when you were trying to schedule this, you know, you talked about alcoholics being, you know, incredibly unpredictable and jamming your schedule up. So is it like a pretty short notice kind of a deal? Yes. I mean, today they're actually texting me right now saying, you know, like we got together with this family and, you know, we need we need you here. They mm-hmm. wanted me there at one o'clock today. Oh, and wow. I was like, sorry, you know, I yeah. got something else that right. I'm not I'm not canceling again. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it is it's if people are calling me, they are in major crisis. Okay. They're scared. They don't want the person to die. And um you know, the, the show intervention is really dramatized. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a very dramatized version of what happens. Although some of the fears on that show are like people are going to run away and you see people running away on that show. So the biggest fear that all families have is they're going to run away. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's happened maybe one in 30 interventions that I've done. Oh, okay. That one person has ran away. So that's not really a good depiction yeah. of what happens. And I do the healing model of intervention, which is a kind of modified love first and the model that you see on TV is called the Johnson's model of intervention where, you know, they, they're just trying to get somebody in treatment. They're not really trying to do anything about any of the other situations that are going on. I really work with the family to make sure that the family is okay, that the mm-hmm. family starts their healing process because nobody gets to stay healthy in a sick relationship. Right. Everybody gets sick. You know, the sickness rubs off on on the whole family and they don't want to get help because they're like, they're the problem. I'm not the problem. Mm -hmm. But if they don't change, I can guarantee you the alcoholic and the addict won't change either. Right. So I sit down with the family for a couple of days and I, you know, do some therapy with them and some, um, trainings and I do a bunch of coaching with them to Mm -hmm. get them ready to actually go in and have a healthy, um, confrontation, you know, like a, like a love confrontation you know because it's not really (laughs) confrontation it's like i love you and and i don't want you to die right but um they have to learn how to do that because most people cave Mm -hmm. you know like sure i'll i'll buy you the car and the house and pay for your gas and and your food and your drugs and Mm -hmm. everything else and they have to learn how to shut the checkbook first so that's where i come in and really coach them into like what are what are healthy boundaries when you're dealing with an addict and an alcoholic, mm-hmm. because alcoholism and addiction has a ripple effect. You know, it closely affects 20 people around you. So, you know, that sickness is rubbing off on all these people and they don't know how to deal with it. So they're dealing with it the best way that they know mm-hmm. how, which is fear. Right. And the fear tells them, do this or this person's going to die. So they don't care if they have to pay a million dollars so that this person doesn't die. But if I'm getting a constant flow of money, I'm never going to 
going to get sober. (laughs) You know, if I have one more couch to sleep on, if I have, you know, one more car to wreck, I'm not getting sober. Right. Um, Do you find it difficult to navigate those waters with like your own experience? Do you use your own experience at all? Or are you there kind of, I take my 12 step hat off completely and I'm there as a, uh, interventionist therapist type of role or do they o- overlap at all they do overlap uh, yeah you know especially when i'm actually doing the intervention right you know the family knows that i'm in recovery and that i'm 22 years sober mm-hmm. and all the things that i've done you know and some of it i do for shock value right you know, like i was dealing drugs and stealing cars and carrying guns and you know like all of this stuff and here i sit today before right. you and absolutely, I'll bring it out if I think it's going to help the alcoholic and right. the addict because I know where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm on team sobriety. Right. Yeah. But, you know, like, the family is my client. Right. The alcoholic and addict isn't. So I set myself up to be the bad guy when I'm dealing with anybody in the intervention as far as the alcoholic and addict goes so that they can have their family there. Mm-hmm. You know, I really set the family up to be the support, to be the the love, to be all that. I'm a disposable relationship mm-hmm. to them. They need their family. Right. So, you know, that's a lot of what I do when I walk into that environment. And it's really effective. And sometimes afterwards, they absolutely love me. I had this girl that was 19, heroin addict, Parents scared to death, you know, found foil and stuff underneath her bed. And, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, my gosh, we don't even know what this is. And I come in. They've never talked to her. Right. And that's what I find a lot of times, especially with younger people, that the parents don't even have a voice to talk to them mm-hmm. at all about it. And did an intervention on her. And she said, I can stop anytime I want. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but you can't stay stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was at a meeting and she comes running up to me at, in the meeting like, oh, my God, this is my intervention. She's like introducing me to everybody like a celebrity and she's still sober today. I think she just turned 24. Wow. And, uh, you know, like how amazing is that? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I get to be the good guy too. That's cool. (laughs) So I've had a couple of relatives that got sober with, um, just a spontaneous spiritual experience like, you know, um, I don't know, God just intervened in their lives and they didn't have to go through the work. And then, I've had friends that I thought were probably uh, of my type, uh, you know, and our book differentiates the difference between the moderate drinker, the heavy drinker, and the real alcoholic or the real addict. And, um, but my buddy fell in love and, um, and married a girl and he didn't want that to be his life. And even though we drank alike, he had the power to stop or moderate, you know, from that. And I'm wondering like, um, with the people you do interventions on, um, are they all pretty much beyond human aid or like, where are you trying to get them from that intervention? Um, do you just give them the different options? Cause you know, some people I think are beyond human aid and need that spiritual experience. And we've got a, and we've got a pretty good recipe to get that. But at the same time, we don't really promote what we do. Um, or do you just try to get them to a de- you know, a detox facility to get their minds clear? Cause, and, and for me having several experiences, when I'm under the influence of opiates, I don't understand that my problem is as serious as it is. That last weekend when my wife was lo- loving it enough to say, I don't, I don't give a fuck what you do, I'm leaving. You know, I can't watch this shit anymore. Um, she came over to get something and was just absolutely astonished by the amount of um, needles that were sitting there and how proud I was because I was disposing of them properly in this big Tide jug. And I thought, like, I had my <laughs> shit handled, right? And she walked in and saw a heroin addict just out of control. But I can't realize that in the moment. And so, like, um, so I don't realize the serious of the situation until my head starts to clear a little bit. And then I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, this is really bad. And so are you trying to get those people just into a detox facility? Or are you trying to help them get into a long-term facility or into the 12-step room? Like, what's the, what's the goal when you um, go into that intervention? So the goal for intervention, just because I'm dealing with people that are, I mean, it's bad. It's <laughs> bad. I'm dealing people dealing with people like one of the first interventions I did. He had a 0.7 blood alcohol level <laughs> seven hours after the last wow. drink. Wow. Seven hours. Yeah. Like, I was like, still alive. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. those are the people I'm dealing okay. with. Okay. Severe, um, all kinds of different things are going on. But usually they need to be hospitalized. Mm-hmm. So... 
the intervention is to take away their ability to make a decision because they can't because their prefrontal cortex is shut off. Mm -hmm. That's why we can't think. That's why our brains are blurry. Because we don't have the ability to see anything more than five to ten seconds into the future. You know, like our our, um, Godzilla brain is working. That's it. Mm -hmm. Fight or flight. Um, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. That's all we're dealing with. Yeah. So you're dealing with somebody that's acting like you're threatening their life by telling them that they can't drink or use drugs anymore. Mm. So we need to get them into a facility so that their brain can clear enough for them to be able to do something after that, whether mm. it's 12 step or sober living or long-term recovery. But, you know, I do some for mental health and the assessment sometimes is the first stage, you know, so Detox, yes, is always a part of most of the times that I do an intervention Mm -hmm. because we're still dealing with them when they're drunk or high. Like I like to get them when they're first thing in the morning. So they're probably still drunk. Right. But they're probably not feeling so hot about themselves. You know, like they're kind of in a shameful place. Right. Or, you know, get them after they've just used or, you know, like when they're, you know, like okay enough to actually have a conversation Mm -hmm. with you. But the love model of intervention really flies underneath the radar and kind of touches their heartstrings. Hmm. So, you know, I coach my families not to touch them, not to rescue them from any of their emotions. If they start crying, don't hand them a tissue, you know, don't get meshed with them. Let them feel their emotions Mm -hmm. and come underneath all of that stuff with love, reminding them of the relationship they have with you. Because people have motivation to get help if you find the motivation that helps them go. You know, most people don't know how to ask. Mm -hmm. So I go in, coach the family on how to find that motivation. And most of it is with love. That's cool. That's amazing. This has been eye-opening because I just don't know anything about interventionists or what an intervention is other than what I've seen on the TV or like movies or something. And it's like, I I just know like if we get the movie version of um, a 12-step group, it's a bunch of people, you know, talking about their day and how they how much better life is since they haven't drank. And then I talk to people that are real alcoholics and if they're not treating their alcoholism, life does not get better when they're not drinking, you know, like, so like the movie version and the TV version of things isn't exactly what the reality reality. is. So yeah, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, we we all walk out of there very exhausted and, you know, hoping that this person changes their lives. But even if they don't, even if they decide that they don't want treatment or they don't want help. I've seen people, you know, go up to 30, 60, 90 days later, you know, as a result of that intervention and the consequence letters, you know, because sometimes the parents will say, I'm not paying for your apartment anymore and I'm not buying you a car and I'm not giving you money Mm -hmm. for anything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that stops, stops them from, you know, perpetuating the problem. The last girl, she spent the night in the park. And mom's like, please let me give her a coat. I'm like, do not give her a coat. Whatever you do, do not give her anything. Like, seriously. This kid has never gone without. And I said, tell her, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. The only thing I can do for you is to get you treatment. Mm -hmm. And one night, it took her one night of spending the night in the park for her to decide to go to treatment. Wow. That sounds about like me. One night. I'm not gonna suffer. I'm soft. Yeah. Yeah, I'm as soft as I come. <laughs> Mine is a little more turtle suits and <laughs> suicide watches. But yeah, that's me. <laughs> the same thing. Uh, helmet stuck on yeah. duct tape onto my <laughs> yeah, head. Exactly. <laughs> Eventually the same thing though. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. I could have just imagined you sitting in like a detox cell all wild eyed and crazy and like you don't know me. Yeah, like rubber rooms, yeah. no yeah. clothes on. Exactly. I mean, they were like putting papers up on the <laughs> on, on the, the detox thing. window so that yeah. everybody walking by couldn't see me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that. that was me. Like, <laughs> yeah. beating my head against the yeah. rubber uh-huh. room wall with a yeah. with a helmet on. Awesome. Yeah. Similar to me. Um, well, we are over an hour in. Damn. So, Marty, oh, do you what? have anything else? Fast. I know. <laughs> you get in here, it's like a time warp. So, do you have any other things you'd like to say, Marty? Um, I don't think so. I think that I just want to thank you for, like, sitting down and doing this with us. Like I said, I know your schedule's so busy and um, you're on the go. And, like, um, you know, I don't know. I'm in this weird spot now, like, where, like I said, when we started this podcast, we're like, you know, sometimes the people that are recovered are hesitant to talk about it because of humility and because of anonymity and because of traditions and stuff like that. And so a lot of times the the, the view we get out in the public is um, 
not like what I get to see and what I get to experience with having that full life. But then the other side that we've also had a little bit too is like we've got to deal with people talking about the realness of, you know, there are some dark times and there are some struggles and life gets real, you know, regardless of, you know, how much program I have, like, you know, sh shit gets real and this, and this, this illness is with me, you know, and so I just, I don't know, I just appreciate you sitting down and talking with us and talking about, you know, going from the, girl with charcoal running down her peach wedding dress at 20 <laughs> to you know to this, this. To, i mean yeah. can you believe it like i was homeless right when i got sober mm -hmm. seriously yeah. and yeah. i get this and you know like what how yeah. does this even happen like it, it constantly amazes me that i get this life i've been with the same man for um 21 years i've been sober for 22 years the baby i got pregnant with just turned 22 you know oh, my, wow. my youngest daughter's in college and in mm. an internship right now like how does how does this even happen yeah like, i've been a productive member of society <laughs> i pay my taxes yeah. like what right? yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah. i never paid taxes when i was dealing drugs right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to go uh, back and pay some taxes from when I wasn't <laughs> I got sober. So, yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for opening your house to us and being honest and open with us and sharing your experience. It's very valued, and I, it's awesome to be around a powerhouse woman in the program that, you know, just packs her life full and is always willing to help. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. You plug our shit. Hey, yeah, we do have a email, recoveredafpodcast at gmail.com, and Aaron and I set up an Instagram page where we will probably post pictures of us setting up and mostly Aaron and I, and if guests are willing, maybe some pictures of them, but we want to protect everyone and respect their anonymity. So it might just be Aaron and I. But Plenty of pictures of me, though. Yeah, <laughs> which Aaron is going to love. So get your tank tops out, Aaron. Tank time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again, Amy. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.